Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us for a tireless Tuesday edition of the program just ahead this hour, China saber-rattling. The nation's new foreign minister warning conflict and confrontation looks inevitable without a U.S. course correction. President Xi issuing a rare pointed attack on Washington, too, saying the West is looking to, quote, contain China. Plus, Bakhmut battling. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky vowing to never back down as fierce fighting for the symbolically important town intensifies. Russia, meanwhile, claiming its liberation quote of Bakhmut continues. And inflation tackling. Fetcher J. Powell testifying before Congress in the next hour. Investors watching for signs of higher rates for longer. And as we await Powell's pronouncements, U.S. futures, as you can see, mostly higher after a little change on Monday. Europe also seeing some green too. Resilience, I think we should call it that, in the face of bond market pressure. Investors now anticipating the highest levels of Federal Reserve and European Central Bank interest rates this tightening cycle. Ouch. A mixed session, meanwhile, for Asia, with the Shanghai Composite falling more than 1%. Mainly economic rhetoric from the ongoing National People's Congress so far. No mention of stimulus to help hit those growth targets. And the frosty U.S.-China relationship weighing on investor sentiment too. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon saying worsening ties between the two superpowers is a top concern this year, along, of course, with the ongoing war in Ukraine, both of those subjects are top stories today, and we do begin in China. The new Chinese foreign minister laying out a stark warning to the United States in his first press conference, saying Washington should not repeat the war in Ukraine in Asia with Taiwan, and criticizing America's perceived Indo-Pacific strategy. Just take a listen to some of what he said. No Cold War should be allowed to be repeated in Asia. The Ukraine crisis should not be repeated in Asia. It claims to maintain regional security, but in fact provokes confrontation and plans an Asia-Pacific version of NATO. Mark Stewart joins us now. Mark, we have to be very conscious, I think, of a few things. The audience, the context here, the fact that this is a highly scripted event. But if he wanted to make a splash, he certainly did it. Julia, that really is the key. Qing Gong is taking over as China's new foreign minister at a time when Xi Jinping is almost trying to put the reset button on his administration, setting the tone for the years ahead. Qing Gong was known as a very careful and accomplished diplomat when he served in that role. Now, as foreign minister, he is now embracing the strong pointed, very direct, very stern language that we have been hearing from Beijing for months. Most notable is a statement that he made referring to the U.S.-China relationship and what that future may hold. Take a listen. 
If the United States does not hit the brake but continue to speed down the wrong path, no amount of guardrails can prevent derailing, and there will surely be conflict and confrontation. Also of note is the fact that he made reference to the U.S. response reaction to the suspected spy balloon all of these weeks later, again suggesting it was an overreaction. Uh, finally, Julia, I want to point out some comments that we heard also from Xi Jinping, Chinese leader Xi Jinping. He was speaking uh, to a group of, of business folks. He made comments to the effect that the U.S., which is rare for him to point out to the U.S. directly, but the U.S. along with the West has done things that have gone in the way uh, of China moving forward. Remarkable that he made such a direct reference point to the U.S. But again, we are in the beginning of a new session, a new, a new uh, regime in a way with new, with new leadership. And that's how Beijing is making its point through very strong verbiage. Yes, and clearly American officials that are hearing this understand the context too, Mark, but a fiery rhetoric nonetheless. Mark Stewart there, thank you for joining us. To Ukraine now, and Ukraine's president promising to find the people responsible for killing an unarmed Ukrainian soldier. It follows the release of video showing the apparent execution of a prisoner of war allegedly in Russian captivity. Here's part of that video and a warning, though. It contains graphic content. Alex Markart joins us now from eastern Ukraine. Alex, what more do we know about the source of that video? And I believe the soldier involved has now been named. Yeah, Julia, that horrific video really fueling outrage fury, sadness all across this country. We are learning a little bit more. Uh, the brigade that this man belonged to or is believed to have belonged to has identified him as Timofey Shadura. Uh, they published his name earlier today. They said that he has been missing since February 3rd. A final confirmation, the Ministry of Defense has said, will come uh, if and when uh, the soldier's body has been returned to Ukrainian-held territory. For now, it is uh, in Russian-held territory. Uh, President Zelensky, as you noted, has said that the murderers will be found. Uh, it is believed, of course, that, that Russian soldiers were the ones who carried out this execution. Ukrainian officials say that is more evidence uh, of Russian war crimes. We've also heard President Zelensky speaking about the battle for Bakhmut, saying that more uh, units are being sent towards Bakhmut uh, to reinforce it. That battle getting uh, much fiercer. It is getting much more difficult uh, for people to be evacuated from there. And Julia, we spent time with the deputy uh, mayor of Bakhmut, who said that everything is being tried to get civilians out of the city. Take a look. Racing into the war zone, a white knuckle drive towards the middle of Bakhmut. <laughs> This is the last successful emergency evacuation mission by the Bakhmut police. We need to go faster, an officer says. The Russians can clearly see us. This team, called the White Angels, grabs civilians who have been trapped, throwing belongings in the back. There's a cat, someone else with a guitar. The fighting raging nearby. The residents told to hurry up and get in and sit anywhere they can. 
As they hold on tight, the rescue mission speeds away from the smoldering city. Ahead, there's smoke from a Russian strike. Getting dropped off safely, Leonid tells the officer that everything is blown up in Bakhmut, even inside his apartment. They've survived months of brutally intense assaults. Russia has made gains trying to encircle Bakhmut and surrounding it on three sides as Ukraine desperately tries to fend them off. Today, we met Bakhmut's deputy mayor in a city nearby at a makeshift aid center for Bakhmut evacuees. He tells us it's very hard to persuade the more than 4,000 civilians left there to leave. They say they have nowhere to go and have no money. It's very hard to survive there, he says. It's not life, it's survival. Drinking water is a big problem. Walking to the well is dangerous, he says. Shells landing on your head all the time. All he now feels, he tells us, is fear and sadness. Everyone here knows how hard it will be for Ukraine to hold on to Bakhmut. Svieta's elderly mother with disabilities didn't want to leave, but Svieta managed to convince her. I don't know if my house is still standing, she tells us. It's very painful thinking about those still in Bakhmut. Her eyes well up. I just want them all to survive, she says. That's my only wish. And Julia, Russian forces led by the Wagner mercenary group have managed to encircle the city on three sides, to the north, to the east, and to the south. And they are uh, pressing forward. They are uh, managing to encircle it from the north and the south. They're pressing into the city from the eastern side. Uh, we saw a video posted by Wagner forces just yesterday on the eastern side of the city. They removed a Ukrainian flag from a Ukrainian monument. They replaced it with their own flag. They raised their guns in the air. They are trying to make it very hard for Ukrainian forces uh, to resupply from the western side of the city, which is the only one that is still open to Ukraine. There are two main roads uh, going into uh, that city. We spent uh, a lot of time in the past few days on that main supply route. Uh, that's where uh, just a couple of days ago, Russian forces blew up a, a crucial bridge. Uh, it has been replaced with, with a temporary bridge, but it is getting a lot harder for those, uh, those civilians to be evacuated, for those Ukrainian forces uh, to be uh, resupplied. At the same time, we are hearing directly from the head of the Wagner uh, PMC, as it's called, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, who has been complaining that he is not getting the ammunition that his forces need from the Ministry of Defense. Now, that just speaks to this uh, gulf that we have seen developing between Russia's military and this private military company. Prigozhin has also said that they are seeing more Ukrainian units move towards Bakhmut. And that is what President Zelensky says that they are going to do. They are going to reinforce their positions. He says that the recommendations from his generals is not to withdraw. It is to stand their ground, to reinforce. So he says that they're looking for units to, to send in that direction. So no talk uh, of withdrawal right now, certainly no announcement. But, Julia, we are starting to see perhaps the groundwork in terms of statements that might be made if there were to be a withdrawal. Top U.S. and Ukrainian officials saying that if Russia were to take over the city, it would merely be a symbolic victory, that Ukraine has managed to degrade Russian forces, kill a lot of, uh, of Russian forces and leave them in a weakened state. So even if they were to take over Bakhmut, uh, that they would be far weaker and unable uh, to go much farther after that. But no doubt, if Ukraine were forced to withdraw from Bakhmut, it would be a significant victory. They have lost thousands uh, of men there, and Russia would be able to be able to claim a symbolic victory. The first city 
that they would have taken from the Ukrainians uh, for months. But that is certainly not a foregone conclusion. Ukraine, for now, holding their ground. Julia? Yeah, for now, the message is um, reinforced rather than anything else. Alex, good to have you. Thank you. Alex Markart there joining us from eastern Ukraine. Now, for the sixth time this year, schools, airports and railroads across France are bracing for disruption amid calls by unions for a nationwide strike. They're fighting legislation to raise the retirement age, which would mean an extra two years of work for most people. Jim Bitterman is in Paris. Jim, great to have you with us. And I believe Paris expected to bear the brunt of these strikes. Just give us a sense of scale and how many people are involved with this. That's it, Julie. I can barely hear your question because of what's going on here in the background. In any case, uh, yes, this is probably going to be the biggest one of any of the strikes uh, and demonstrations, the demonstrations across France. Uh, as you mentioned, it's the sixth uh, demonstration, uh, the sixth day of demonstration. Uh, kind of a crunch time for the unions here because coming up in just about seven days or eight days' time, the enabling legislation, which will move the retirement age from 62 to 64, will be before the National Assembly. So if the unions want to convince people and convince the legislators that uh, they are right in this and opposing it, uh, they have got a few days, just a few days left. And one of the things that's going to be interesting at the end of the day today is to see whether or not uh, there have been a number of strikers out. We see big demonstrations, but does this represent what's the people that are really on strike. For example, there are about 30% of the teachers are on strike, so not a great turnout there as far as the unions are concerned, but uh, four out of five of the TGVs and Cork Century trains uh, have been canceled because of the strike. So it's a real question of how big the union turnout is going to be. And then the second question is how long this goes on, because uh, for the first time in uh, the, this series of strikes, the unions are calling for what they call ongoing strikes. Normally, strikes uh, here, here are just for a day or so. Uh, and uh, now they want to have ongoing strikes, meaning they could continue right up until the vote in the parliament. So we'll see how it looks at the end of the day, whether or not this is the kind of thing that's going to move the government at the moment. It hasn't, none of the other previous demonstrations have been very effective in that regard. Brilliant. Yes, Jim, I'll refrain from asking you another question because I know you can barely hear me, but I, I did hear you say raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. Maybe it comes from a privilege of um, loving one's job, but that does feel very young to collect a pension. Anyway, thank you for your report and we'll speak to you soon. Jim Bitterman there in Paris. Now to the world of K-pop and it's a battle of the bands, but with a difference. The influential pop music agency SM Entertainment at the centre of a billion-dollar takeover battle. In one corner, the internet giant Kakao. In the other, Hybe, the agency behind boy band BTS. Stick with me. I know it's complicated. Oh, Richard Crest spoke recently with Hybe's chairman and asked why he wants a bigger stake in SM. SM is a very 다음에 하이브라는 회사는 원래 예술가들의 자율성을 건드리지 않고 경영적인 프로세스에 있어서만 좋은 회사가 되도록 도와주는 회사라는 건 이미 잘 알려진 사실이라서 사실 많은 분들이 하이브가 SM을 인수했을 때 일어날 효과에 대해서 기대하고 있다. And Paula Hancock joins us now. Paula, never mind K-pop. My brain went pop when I was trying to understand exactly what's going on here and, and what it's going to mean for, for fans and some of these K-pop stars. Just explain to us what's going on and what we need to understand. 
So, Julia, basically there is a tug of war at the moment to try and gain control of the, the iconic agency SM Entertainment. So what has happened today? This Tuesday, there's a new development. Kakao, which is the internet giant here, has launched a $962 million bid uh, offer for the, uh, the SM Entertainment. It's done this uh, through a tender offer, and that's just after it had a previous attempt blocked by a local court. So it's uh, really a counterattack to another company. You just heard from the CEO there, Hybe, who had also been trying uh, to gain the controlling share in SM Entertainment. Now, Hybe is uh, the agency that manages BTS, a very influential agency here, and it had been trying to launch a tender offer of its own, but that was rejected by investors, which really laid uh, things open for Kakao to come in and make this offer. Now, we don't know if this offer is going to be accepted. We know that they have until about March 26th for shareholders to decide if they want Kakao to, uh, to have control of their shares and see if they can get up to that uh, magic majority figure. Uh, and we also don't know if Hybe's going to up its offer as well. What we do know, though, and this is quite interesting, is beyond all the complex uh, and, and the difficulties of, of the business, there is a very public and growing complex spat in the shareholders. Uh, we know that the founder, for example, of SM, a man called Lee Su Man, he's known here as the godfather of K-pop, a very well-known uh, man. He actually has sold his shares, his controlling stake, to Hybe, but those that he once managed on the management team now favour Kakao, and they are having a very public spat. So it is an increasingly complex story, but of course the stakes are very high. Who is going to control SM Entertainment? Who manages the likes of Girls' Generation? I don't know if there will be more twists and turns, but uh, Julia, it has certainly been quite a saga already. Yeah, the money wins. We'll see. Who's got the deepest pockets? Paul Hancock, thank you so much for that. All right, straight ahead. Everything's still lively at Lego. The Danish toy giant is 90 years young, with all the pieces still falling into place, it seems. We'll discuss Lego's future with its CEO, Niels Christensen. That's coming up. Plus, zooming ahead with Zooks. Amazon's autonomous vehicle firm is road testing its robo-taxi. Could the vehicle be headed down your highway soon? We'll discuss with Zooks CEO. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. Building a business for 90 years, Lego is marking its anniversary, it seems, by outpacing its rivals and gaining market share. The Danish toy giant reported a jump in revenue of nearly 17% last year and a modest net profit rise of 4%. It says new products, a strong digital presence and resilient supply chains all played a part in growing the business. And I'm pleased to say Niels Christensen is CEO and president of the Lego Group and he joins us now. Wow, that's a pretty cool backdrop, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about some of the toys in a second. Um, but congrats, I think, is the, is the word on another solid year. Though I did see your forecasting normalization of top grind growth this year. So just talk us through what you're seeing and put that in context. Yeah, well, we, we're very happy with the year we've just, uh, we just closed because uh, it's not been a year without challenges between inflationary costs, uh, us stepping out of uh, operating the Russian market in the beginning of the year, and also having seen some, uh, some COVID restrictions in, in China. So we overcame all that by, by growing and we grew by taking 
market share basically throughout uh, throughout the world and growing way ahead of the of the market. So that that was that was exciting. Looking ahead, we will continue a lot of these investments, allowing us, I believe, to take market share. So we anticipate to continue that, and uh, depending on how the market is, then uh, then also grow into into twenty three. Uh, so uh, that's our expectation. You know, the last time you and I were speaking, we were talking about some of those input price pressures in particular and the tough decision that you had to make on select products to raise some prices. Where do you stand today? And is there any hope as some of the energy price costs have come down between now and the last time we spoke, perhaps reducing or is there just not enough clarity to be able to take that kind of decision? I think it's probably too early to, to reduce. But but as you said, it's exactly like in the uh, in the. Um, in the autumn, we did raise prices on a select part of the portfolio because of those input prices going up. We have seen, to your point, uh, them coming down a little bit from the peak uh, and, uh, and uh, hope to see that continue throughout the year. Hopefully, then we can avoid actually having to uh, increase prices more. And uh, as always, we would like to make the, the product as attractive and as, uh, as, as good price value as we can across. And I think we've been pretty okay with that during the uh, during the COVID pandemic of not raising prices until a little bit in the autumn of last year. We can talk about two things in terms of investment in both digitization, but also in new products as well. And I think one of the other things that stood out from these results, almost half the products you sold last year, so 48% were new in 2022. Just that upcycle of continuing to innovate and provide new products is also surely key to the kind of growth that you're, you're managing to sustain. Yeah, that's true. It's quite special, actually. And I, I typically say we are no better than what we've just invented. So we have to renew ourselves all the time, as you say, with half of the product line being new every year. So we are we are as good as the creativity and the innovation we can bring about all the time. But it also allows us to be super relevant and cool to what kids and adults would uh, like right now. And, uh, and in that sense, I think it's also a, a huge strength that we pull it off with the right type of innovation, with the right relevance then it also really puts us, I think, in front of what, uh, what consumers want right now. And that was very successful throughout 2022. And that, of course, is the biggest, the biggest challenge of all that we have constantly sitting with us. Uh, but it's, it's working well right now. And that applies wherever you're operating in the world. I, I remember being astonished at the quantity of stores and the footprint that you were opening in China specifically last year. And a hindsight, perfect site. But with the end of zero COVID policies, uh, that surely seems like great timing. What are you seeing there? Because the the mood music, certainly on the manufacturing side and the services side, is we're seeing a roaring back to life in, in China's economy. What are you seeing in terms of product demand? Yeah, we're actually seeing that. I mean, it is, it is true what you say. We had we saw a bit of a COVID last year, and it was, it was actually very hard to keep stores open or, or even getting people into stores. But we've seen the first couple of months of this year is really that traffic has come back. And basically across the world, we're now seeing traffic at or even above the pre-COVID uh, 2019 level. So it's really exciting to see how in a business like ours, the fact that you can get into a Lego store, you can be around Lego people, you can get your hands on Lego play or Lego bricks, that, uh, that just is so important for the brand and people and consumers like it so much that they walk out of the stores with a big smile and a high uh, high NPS uh, when we measure that coming out. So that's something that's very important for us in building the brand. And in China, as your example is, we have a lot of a lot of kids in China that are super interested uh, in the Lego brand, but 
Which parents did not play with Lego bricks when they were kids and they're not into the brand uh, or aware of the brand enough yet. That's when it's super important for us to put in place stores, not only in the biggest cities, but also in more rural areas or smaller cities or tier three or four cities. And that works really well. By the way, we also open stores in, in, a, in a lot of other countries outside China. So this, this brand building element and experience building element of a store is, is just super important for us. And that takes me to my next question, because I know one of the key proponents of how you run this business is to match where the demand is to the manufacturing base and having it localized, which obviously helped you navigate what we saw during the the COVID pandemic and the efficiency of supply chains. Talk to me about the decision to break ground, because I know that took place late last year on a $1 billion carbon neutral factory in Vietnam. And just to give my viewers a sense, the size of this is 60 football fields, I believe. So we're talking about a whopping facility. Why Vietnam and perhaps not choosing a location in China? We, we, uh, there's several things. On. We have one location in China. So in that sense, we've actually been expanding that facility over the last couple of years. But with the potential for growth in Asia, the amount of kids that are there and the potential we see for growth, we actually would like always to have factories close to consumers so we can kind of avoid the long supply chains and the delays so we can produce the right product very close to the time the consumers want it. And by the way, so transportation and sustainability, CO2 emissions are kept to a minimum. So there, Vietnam is a very good location for us to serve kind of Japan, Australia, that part of uh, of Asia Pacific, and uh, yeah, it's a huge factory. When you stand there, you oversee it. It's like 66 football fields, but next to it, there's another 70 football fields worth of land for the solar panels. That's going to power that factory right in there. So it's uh, it's, it's quite a big piece of land. And by the way, the same is happening in Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, in the U.S. We're building a similar carbon neutral factory. Yeah, you have a lot going on. Um, I want to talk about. The metaverse and the tie-up that we were discussing last time with Epic, which is, of course, the the maker of um, Fortnite, which I know a lot of um, young people, particularly and parents watching this, will know very well. When can we expect the fruits of this collaboration to um, to be released? How long do we have to wait? We have to wait a little bit longer. It's, it is super exciting, but we have to wait a little bit longer. And it will be too much, I think, the, the, the second half or the later part of this year will be able to reveal more. Uh, but uh, but uh, I am super excited about how that's coming along and what we can what we can offer of experience and digital experiences when we get there. But it takes a little bit longer, unfortunately. <laughs> that's okay. We are building up the anticipation. Um, you can come on the show and talk to me about it when you're when you're ready for release. That'd be great. Um, I'd love to see. You. There you go. That's that's a date now. You've promised. Niels Christensen, CEO and president of the Lego Group, sir. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, stay with CNN. Coming up, Jay on the way. The US Fed chair could deliver a sobering message on inflation and interest rates when he testifies before Congress next hour. What this all means next.
Welcome back to First Move. And U.S. stocks are up and running on Wall Street this Tuesday. The Fed Chair Jay Powell set to deliver his economic views. What he says before Congress will surely make news. And it might not be good news. Cautious trading, therefore, ahead of Powell's pronouncements next hour. His first appearance on Capitol Hill, in fact, in nine months. Powell set to face tough questions from lawmakers fearful of the impact of higher interest rates on their voters. He could also take the heat for not getting inflation more firmly under control. So he's bashed either way, unfortunately. In other headlines, shares of Facebook's parent company Meta are higher in early trade amid rumours the firm could announce more job cuts. Just for context, over 10 percent of Meta's workforce were let go late last year. Also, Snap shares rallying almost 10 percent during Monday's session. You can see there investors monitoring the increasingly hardline stance in Congress against its competitor TikTok. Two senators set to introduce a bill today that would make it easier to ban TikTok in the United States. And as you can see there, Snap seemingly would be a beneficiary. And from Snap and TikTok to the J. Powell countdown clock, the Fed chair about to speak as we speak. And Christine Romans is here. Christine, you said it yesterday and I'm reiterating it. The problem he's got, he said he's going to be criticised on both sides. Inflation is painful. Higher prices is painful. But the treatment, as we've now been saying for more than a year to try and fix that, it's also painful, particularly if you have debts or credit cards. You know, absolutely. And he's going to want to deliver a simple message about, you know, what the Fed's playbook is and how they're sticking to that playbook. But there's nothing simple about what's happening in the economy right now. I mean, you have a very strong labor market. You have consumers that continue to spend. The underlying strength in the U.S. economy is still strong, almost impervious to those eight interest rate hikes. And so the question is, are we headed for a recession? Do we dodge a recession? On the front page of The Wall Street Journal this morning, um, they called it the Godot recession. Wait waiting for Godot. Remember, I don't think Godot in that play ever actually came. But we're sitting here worried about something. We don't know what the shape of it is and what it's going to look like. I also think that you're going to hear from Democrats and progressives in particular who are going to say, hey, wait a minute, all of these interest rate hikes are just a very cruel, cruel tool that hits people who don't have any money, who don't have any resources, who have to rely on on debt to grow and survive. So I think there's a lot of different ways this hearing today could play out. Yeah, cruel and crude. Unfortunately, it's a relatively blunt instrument. The question is, how high do they go? I made the comment earlier on the show that we're in a situation now where if you look at what bond markets or investors in bond markets, bonds are telling you, they see the rates the highest they've been for both the European Central Bank and for the Federal Reserve since the rate hike process began. There's real palpable fear out there, I think, that that rates have to go significantly higher than they are even today. Yeah. And how much higher, I wonder, if we've had eight rate hikes at such a trajectory and the economy is still chugging along like this. I mean, one wonder, I mean, outside of housing and I think credit card interest rates, you haven't had a meaningful impact yet of those higher rates, unless there's a place in the economy that I can't see and that I'm missing. Right. But uh, in terms of slowing things down, uh, I think that is a, just a really fascinating place to be. And again, the, the, what is going to be the Fed's simple message today? Because there's no simple explanation for what's happening in the economy and no simple way to solve it. Yeah. And we always want answers immediately. Recession or not, no right. landing or a hard landing. Uh, to go back to what we were talking about yesterday um, with uh, Mr. Zandi over at Moody's, That's this right. idea of a slow session. If you can do this gradually, if you can raise rates gradually and wait to see what the impact is, um, you know, perhaps you can avoid the ongoing boom bust cycle that we've, you know, the habit that we've got into. 
Yeah, and the job market is so strong. The unemployment rate is still so low. You could have a meaningful worsening of the labor market and still have an unemployment rate that only gets to maybe just south of 5%. Yeah. Would we accept that? Would that be an okay way to kill inflation? Maybe. Yeah. Certainly better than higher. Yeah. <laughs> Christine, thank you. Nice okay. Coming up on First Move, the taxi of the future, the CEO of Zooks on a major milestone and challenges in the journey. Next. Welcome back to First Move. No driver? No problem. This robo-taxi built by Zooks, successfully driving on public roads for the first time. Zooks, an autonomous vehicle company owned by Amazon, is running a shuttle service for its employees between the company's two main buildings in California. It can travel at up to 35 miles an hour with up to four passengers on board. Now, U.S. safety regulators have been reviewing Zooks' operations since last year and just this week announced a probe into Zooks' self-certification that allows these journeys to be made. Joining us now is Zooks CEO Aisha Evans. Aisha, fantastic to have you on the show once again. Um, We clearly have a lot to discuss, but I want to start with these trips because this is clearly a huge moment. What has the feedback from employees been like and, and how do they work? Uh, the feedback has been, first of all, hi, Julia. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> the feedback has been uh, wonderful. Uh, one of our engineers who's sort of, you know, you want a mix of people who are sort of believers, people who are skeptics. And one of our tough critics uh, internally got off the robo-taxi uh, on his first ride and his eyes were, he said, this is unbelievable. It's even better than I thought. And so that tells you a little bit of the feeling of the, in terms of the reaction. Has any of the staff gone, you know what, this is really great, but I'd rather take my own car or I'd rather walk and I just want to give it a bit longer? Because I would understand people saying that too. So internally, Julia, uh, we run a culture that's very transparent. Uh, We kind of don't sell uh, miracles to our employees. That's just not how uh, we roll here. So they understand this is a first step. Nobody's giving up their car or walking or doing any of that anytime soon. And even in the future, when we start launching with uh, sort of a broader scale, it's really about addressing the current demand that is already using mobility on demand. And then, yes, uh, eventually making a dent into a personal car ownership. Walking, bicycles, all good. Uh, We just want to be an additional mode of transportation and serve a segment that currently we feel is poorly served. Yeah. And just to be clear, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there are, I believe, limitations to this. Uh, I mentioned the speed limit. It tops out at 40 miles an hour, even though the vehicle can go quicker. Um, You're only using it Saturdays and Sundays during daylight hours and not during bad weather. Is that right? So there are limits even to to the program that you're currently running. Absolutely. So we've been very clear and very consistent at Zook since inception that safety is foundational and critical. And by safety, we don't just mean qualitative safety. We mean a quantitative safety case. And so there is the notion of what's called an ODD or operational design domain. And what you can expect is that that's the first step. We call it the tiny step. Then comes small, comes medium, comes large. And so by the time we launch our employee uh, shuttle in um, in the spring, you'll see more expansion of the ODD. And then every few months, a lot more expansion. But the goal, make no mistake about it, is uh, basically you know, rain, nighttime, daytime, snow is going to take a while. That's a, that's a way more complicated uh, proposition and dense urban environment because that's where the demand is. 
Yeah, I mean, we're now watching uh, videos as you're speaking as well of, of the vehicle moving. And I think what's probably very clear to my audience now is there is no driver. There's no steering wheel. There's no brake. So this is very different from a sort of Tesla example, just to use one, of a vehicle that can be driven but also has an oil autopilot feature. What you're creating here and have created is a, a car that will never have a driver, will never have a brake, and is fundamentally an auto autonomous vehicle. Correct. It is a transportation robot. It's not a car. I've said this many different times. It uses a lot of things that uh, that are similar to cars, but it's a transportation robot, and uh, really the future of transportation, especially in uh, in major major cities. And yes, we do not want you to think about driving when you're in that vehicle. If you do, we want you to think about being transported. And if you think about driving, we actually failed. Yeah. So this is a very important distinction, I think, which brings me to the regulators and how the regulators view this, regulate this, understand the data that you're collecting and understand the safety of the vehicle, I think, as well, Aisha. So explain to me the decision by auto regulators this week to launch a probe, because I know you've been sort of going through a review process now and answering questions for many months. What does the announcement to this week on Monday this week mean? We welcome it. Uh, we've been working with uh, uh, the regulatory agencies uh, at the federal, state and uh, local level for multiple years. Uh, we knew that uh, we, Zooks, chose to go for the ultimate solution, which is essentially a robotaxi, purpose-built for just doing exactly this. And so we know that we are basically innovating, changing the landscape with no manual controls whatsoever. And we would expect them to uh, issue an audit query, which is essentially a request for more information on all of the testing we've been doing, and to make it public and official so that they are sending also the signal that they are doing the right thing in terms of this first robotaxi on public roads. And so we are, we've very proud of our engagement with them. We're grateful also for the intensity of the engagement. But this is something that we welcome. And as a citizen, we expect. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, I think, because most people reading this will be like, hang on a second, but you're, you're already operating on roads. So you've sort of self-certified that you're ready to go. And now the US regulators are like, hang on a second, we just need to work out that you, you are ready. Do you think this is working in the right order? Um, and, and does this slow you down in terms of and you can tell me how long we have to wait until this is operating on a road with other drivers on a, any weather, any environment, any road basis. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, I, on the any, it's going to be uh, a while. Uh, this robotaxi is going to be uh, geofenced, meaning in a specific area uh, that's mapped and understood uh, for the foreseeable future. I want to be very clear. The any of all the conditions, roads, weather, that's going to be a while. In terms of the order, I think it makes sense. I mean, this is the first robotaxi purpose-built and on public roads. We are already amongst road agents we don't control. We're down here in Foster City. It's a vibrant community. There are people who live here, who work here. And so we're already operating within that environment. Now, on weekends, to start, though, that, though our employee shuttles would be weekdays and uh, sunset to, um, uh, or sunrise to sunset. I think the order is great because Zooks has been very consistent. We were going to use the current regulatory fr- framework. We're not asking for changes or discounts or exemptions or anything like that. And so given that we've 
now gone through this process in consultation with the agencies. It's now public. Most of the public and the press and the enthusiasts don't really understand the details under the hood in terms of what happens. To have an audit query where it's on the record, it's official, and they can get all of the information and even more, I think it makes a lot of sense. If we weren't first, then I would be worried. But given that we're first, I think it makes perfect perfect sense. And we're trailblazing, and that's what, you ha- what happens when you trailblaze. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. Everybody's learning here, including the regulators. So um, as long as you're working hand in hand with them and providing all the information that they require, then um, there's not much more we can ask. While I would it's going so. to go on, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I would think I have so. to say, your excitement getting in and out of that vehicle was palpable. It was um, it was quite exciting. I think you were basically skipping. Um, define a while. You said it's going to take a while. You said it. The demand is there. Every time I use a ride hailing app like Uber, I'm I'm so grateful, quite frankly, for the convenience and the fact that this has been invented. Um, The demand is clearly there. How long do you think it takes on a practical safety regulatory, of course, basis to to have these up and running? Because I do feel like I've been being promised by tech CEOs for years now that that it's, it's coming. So first thing is, uh, you know, I, I used to resent a little bit the overpromising, but the reality yeah. is that the level of change we're bringing to this industry and how it's going to impact society, uh, you have to have irrational belief and exuberance at the beginning or you don't start the journey. So what I will tell you is this, again, Zooks doesn't really... Uh, doesn't really consider this date or that date. What I will tell you is that we would not have gotten on public roads with this first step in California uh, unless we were getting really close to being out in the public carrying paying passengers. And uh, we've already said we're going to start in Las Vegas uh, and then um, sort of in parallel or close to in parallel San Francisco. And from there, you can expect uh, many more cities and we'll sort of follow the the good weather. Uh, Rain is not a problem and snow is going to be a while. So Manhattan and Chicago and Denver, probably on the tail end of things, but the journey has started and you can expect points on the board on a fairly regular basis. And uh, any naming of names on the overpromising? Anyone in particular? You would no, like we don't do that. We don't do <laughs> Just that. Checking. That's what we, do, we take a high road. <laughs> exactly. Ah, there we go. A road pond to finish. I should great to chat to you. Thank you. We'll speak again Thank soon. Thank you, Julia. The CEO of Thank you. We'll see. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Coming up after the break, a social sacking turbulence. On Twitter, once again, it's a story we can't keep our eyes off. Details after the break. Welcome back to First Move. Twitter's staff count has apparently dropped from around 7,500 to less than 2,000 people since Elon Musk took over. The process has been challenging, as we've discussed many times on this show. And one employee who wasn't sure if he still had a job used Twitter to confirm with Musk in person. Product designer Haley Thorleifson said he'd been locked out of his Twitter accounts for nine days, but no one had told him he'd been let go. So he posted this tweet asking the chief executive to spell it out for him. And after a public back and forth with Elon Musk himself, an answer emerged. Anna Anna Stewart picks up the story. Wow, I'm really struggling with my uh, my own words (laughs) on this story. It's a tough one, Anna. I have to say, we're used to these 
Twitter back and forth with Elon Musk and individuals, and there's been all sorts of spoofs with with Twitter mm. people being let go. But but this one's quite painful. Just walk us through it because the back and forth established that it seems he had been fired, but it was um, classic Elon Musk handling. And classic Twitter 2.0, frankly. I mean, there are a few things you have to get past before you hit perhaps the worst part of the story. First of all, this guy doesn't know whether or not he works at his company. He is locked out. That is how people have been losing their jobs at Twitter, just finding that access is blocked. The second bit is when he says he spoke to the head of HR and they didn't know, days in, having been locked out of, locked out of his accounts, whether or not he was being employed by the company, the head of HR doesn't know. That is a concern if that is is true. And then, of course, there are Elon Musk's tweets. And we've come to expect all sorts of bombastic explosive tweets here. And some of it, frankly, was as you would expect. And there was some quite good jesting, I would say, between the two at one stage. And then it gets actually to a point where you think, hang on a minute, did he just tweet that? Elon Musk tweets, this guy, who is independently wealthy, did no actual work, claimed as his excuse that he had a disability that prevented him from typing, yet was simultaneously tweeting up a storm. Right, so this employee does have a disability. He has muscular dystrophy. He has been wheelchair-bound for 20 years. And he goes into great detail in response to that tweet this morning, the fact that he now increasingly struggles with his fingers and he struggles to type for prolonged periods of time. Uh, He finds tweeting, he says, slightly easier because it involves just one finger from his hand. Should he need to excuse his disability? He even says that clearly what was uh, confidential in terms of the conversations he has with HR has been made public by Elon Musk. At this point, it is worth noting, I think, that there are several lawsuits pending. One, uh, we believe, violates the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, According to another former employee, he's hoping to bring that lawsuit. There is a lot going on here. And you just wonder where it ends, Julia. Yeah. I mean, you did a great job of weaving everything in. There was the sort of back and forth that established that he had been fired and then the individual then got a, a notification, we believe, from, from HR, at least he said that. But then the response where he told the story of selling his business to Twitter, then being in some way employed by Twitter afterwards, was written out in a very long Twitter thread that's been done in the last hour or so. Um, Anna, to your point about potential impending lawsuits, confusion over whether you're working there. In some respects, it's much of the same of what we've heard from people have been let go. But Mm. um, this is painful, I think, for any CEO, whether you like to laugh things off or joke around or not. um, This is an eye opener one. It is, and that Elon Musk has been quite quiet in terms of this thread so far this morning, at least. In the few hours, he's probably been awake. We'll see whether that remains the case. But I think what happens next will be very interesting for Holly. Now, given... You know, it is U.S. employment law. They can let you go, but they need to give you 60 days notice or 60 days severance, maybe more, depending on what this contract is. Yeah, and and one of the things that that Holly points out is that he's owed money and he wants Elon Musk to, to pay him quite what money we don't know. Um, The plot thickens. He has an open invite to come on our show and talk about it too, as does Elon Musk, of course, too. Anna Stewart, (laughs) we leave it there. Thank you so much for that. That's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.